0: When my book, Warriors of the Wildlands, True Tales of the Frontier Partisans came out in 2017, I was invited to do an author presentation at our local independent bookstore, Palina Springs Books in Sisters, Oregon. About 70 people turned out, which was really gratifying. I had planned to focus on my chapter on the Shawnee War Captain Blue Jacket. But not long before the event, the Unite the Right rally and the ensuing riot had happened in Charlottesville, Virginia. And the trouble there centered around the removal of Confederate monuments. I figured I kind of owed it to myself and to my audience to relate the story in Warriors that had the most contemporary resonance. To be honest, I felt like it would be chicken shit to avoid dealing with the element of Warriors of the Wildlands that had the most immediate relevance to contemporary issues so I switched up and told the tale of Texas Ranger Ben McCullough Ben McCullough was a tier one frontier partisan highly capable scout and spy and an outstanding combat leader. He was also an ardent pro-slavery Southern patriot who died in battle in service of the Confederate States of America. He was one of the the people in the pre-Civil War era who plotted filibustering expeditions to conquer parts of northern mexico or cuba for the slaveholding south and we covered those in in previous podcasts and uh, i can put a link in the in the show notes defenders of southern heritage these days often try to downplay the the whole slavery issue and they argue that, that it wasn't really about slavery, it was about states' rights, tariffs, cultural differences, that those were the, the roots and the causes of the schism between North and South. And I'm sorry, but that's that's bullshit. All you have to do is read the secession proclamations of the Confederate states to see that slavery was central. They seceded from the Union in order to protect the institution of slavery. And McCullough himself never downplayed his beliefs. He was a Southern patriot, and that meant that he was pro-slavery. So this honorable, brave, skillful man deployed his many admirable traits at the end of his career at any rate, in the service of an institution that virtually everyone today considers abhorrent and a dark stain upon American history. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the exact kind of history that we really need to to grapple with. So I spun out McCullough's story, and then we had a very lively discussion about what you do with a man like Ben. Do we repudiate him? and erase him from history because we reject the cause in which he died, or for which he died? Or do we take the bad with the good and reckon with him on his own terms? That session was really a high point of my creative life. And that was illustrated uh, when I was signing books, and a, a woman came up and said, I'm working on learning to be comfortable feeling uncomfortable. This helped with that. And that really felt like a win. So let's stoke up the campfire here and talk about who this ranger was and what he did. Ben McCullough was born and bred to be a frontier partisan. He was a native of Tennessee, and as a young man, he followed David Crockett to Texas Just as a side note, Crockett really never liked being called Davy Crockett and always referred to himself as David. So Ben McCullough followed Crockett to Texas, and he missed a Christmas rendezvous with with him in Nacogdoches in 1835. And a uh, fortuitous case of the measles left him too far behind Crockett's party to end up at the Alamo, but he was close enough to be blooded at San Jacinto, where he manned one of the legendary twin sisters, Cannon. And that was the battle that won Texas its independence. From then on, Ben McCullough was a dedicated fighting man. He played a prominent role in the Texas Rangers' victory at Plum Creek in 1840 when they caught up with and harried a massive Comanche war party that had raided all the way to the Gulf of Mexico and sacked the coastal town of Linville, but it was really in the Mexican War of 1846 to 1848 that Ben McCullough made his name and fame. He formed a company to serve under the legendary Ranger Captain Jack Hayes, and his duties were primarily scouting and reconnaissance, and that was not desirable duty for men who really were spoiling for a fight with Mexicans who over the past decade had become enemies in a a blood feud. Hayes Rangers in the Mexican War came from a culture that was steeped in feud going back to the English-Scottish borders of the 16th century. They were a rough lot and They weren't, though, the semi-barbarians that they've often been portrayed to be. Many of them were professional men, doctors, lawyers, newspaper editors, whose accomplishments and social standing kind of belied their, their outlaw appearance. But they did have an outlaw appearance. And as we discussed in the previous podcast episode about Mustang Gray... Depending on their leadership, uh, they could get out of hand pretty easily and uh, committed atrocities against Mexican civilians uh, who they, they didn't really distinguish from what they considered to be Mexican bandits or ranchero irregulars during this war. General Zachary Taylor, who commanded American forces in northern Mexico during the Mexican War, described them this way. One species of mounted force peculiar to the western frontier of the United States is efficient. The inhabitants of that frontier, from their vicinity to hostile Indians, are well-practiced in partisan warfare, and although they will not easily submit to discipline, yet take the field in rough, uncouth habiliments, and, following some leader chosen for his talent and bravery, perform partisan duties in a manner hardly to be surpassed. And in McCullough's case, they really have never been surpassed. The indiscipline of the Texas Rangers and the blood feud, gang warfare nature of their personal war with Mexicans occasionally led to some, quote, disgraceful atrocities perpetrated by them, as one U.S. Army officer put it. But the Rangers played an essential role in the capture of the city in Monterey in northern Mexico. And Ben McCullough's Rangers were part of a force that swung around the city to the southwest and interdicted the Saltillo Road to prevent reinforcements from reaching this beleaguered Mexican city. And McCullough's men were involved in a couple of sharp skirmishes with Mexican cavalry and then participated in the storming of Federal Hill and Independence Hill, the two heights that commanded the perimeter of the city. And the Rangers and regular troops, with Rangers in the vanguard, stormed the defensive works and inflicted severe casualties. They took the fortified Bishop's Palace, which the Rangers, being practical men, called simply the Black Fort. Much to his and his men's disgust, McCullough's rangers were then pulled out to conduct more recon, which meant they missed most of the bitter house-to-house street fighting that followed in Monterey. Once they were cut loose from their recon and picket duty, Ben and his rangers just charged into the city on horseback, As one witness described it, yelling like Indians and discharging their rifles at the Mexicans on the rooftops, a few of whom still continued to fire upon them as they passed along the street. A frightened citizen said, My heart almost failed me. The Texians, with their coarse hickory shirts and trousers confined by a leather strap to their hips, their slouched hats and their sweat-and-gunpowder-begrimed faces, certainly presented a most brigandish appearance. And, as is the case all the way up into modern times, uh, some of the more conventional forces looked askance as well at these elite irregular troops. Colonel Jefferson Davis of the Mississippi Rifles, whose name you might recognize as the future president of the Confederate States of America, observed stiffly that This is no place, sir, for the charge of horsemen. Davis and McCullough would never get along. The Mexicans were rooted out and pushed into the city's plaza where they suffered severely under American artillery fire. And the Texans were wetting their bowie knives and fixing to get some bloody payback for several Mexican slaughters of Texans during the War of Independence and during the Meyer Expedition of 1842. Like I said, blood feud and gang warfare. But General Zachary Taylor scotched those hopes and negotiated a ceasefire and the surrender of the city of Monterey, granting the Mexican commander, Ampudia, and his army safe conduct to leave the city and head southward. And McCullough's Rangers were incensed, extremely pissed off. And one of Taylor's guards wrote, Ben McCullough's Texas Rangers were still loud in their expressions of indignation. Threats were made against General Taylor, and the old hero deemed it necessary to double the Dragoon Guard around his headquarters. The Rangers didn't act on their, their anger, and uh, this perceived threat didn't seem to uh, interfere with Taylor's future relationship with McCullough, who he personally respected. The Army provided Ampudia and his men an escort to protect them from these angry and bloodthirsty Texans, and the Rangers, most of them, mustered out of the service shortly after the capture of Monterey. So McCullough went back to Texas and recruited another band of rangers and went back into the war. He'd made a kind of hero's reputation for himself at Monterey, but his most significant contribution to the American defeat of Mexico in the Mexican War of 1846-48 to was yet to come. It turns out that the scouting of Ben McCullough probably saved the U.S. Army from disaster and led to, instead, a smashing success in the Battle of Buena Vista. It's a bold statement, but the facts support it. After the Battle of Monterey, General Taylor's army was stalled out in northern Mexico, depleted badly by disease and and the departure of men whose enlistments had run out like many of McCullough's Texas Rangers. The theater of war, at least active war, had shifted south where General Winfield Scott had landed an army at Veracruz and was pushing into the central Mexico interior and driving on Mexico City. What Taylor did not know was that the Mexican general Santa Ana, who had stormed the Alamo in 1836, killing all of the defenders, massacred several hundred Texans at Goliad, and then lost the battle at San Jacinto. He was back in the saddle in in Mexico and and, uh, leading their army, and he had abandoned his front against Scott and move north in what was really kind of a desperate bid to crush Taylor and drive north to Texas. He hoped that if he could defeat Taylor and actually occupy American territory in Texas, that he could force a negotiated end to the war um, and possibly even uh, retain some or all of Texas. It was a really desperate Gambit, but if he had taken Taylor by surprise, it might have succeeded, at least in part. Fortunately for the Americans, Ben McCullough was in the field with his Rangers. Scouting south from Taylor's camp at Agua Nueva, McCullough and his riders chased some Mexican pickets toward a significant Mexican rancho named Rancho. La Encarnacion, and during that chase, they took a prisoner who denied that there were any Mexican troops at Encarnacion. Mark McCullough's take on this prisoner's conduct says a lot about McCullough's character. Instead of being angered by what this experienced ranger-captain could easily tell was a lie, he respected the man's courage and his patriotism. Moving forward, McCullough's scouts encountered a a dark mass, what they described as a a dark mass lying about 400 yards to their front, and they approached cautiously until they drew a blinding volley of fire from what turned out to be Mexican cavalry. Using standard ranger tactics— aggression, and violence of action, McCullough ordered a pistol charge, but only a handful of his scouts could control their horses well enough to actually engage the enemy, which was okay because they were on a recon mission and their orders were not to engage in combat. So after a brief firefight, McCullough pulled his patrol back and returned to Taylor's headquarters. In the confusion of the pistol charge, they'd lost their Mexican prisoner, which didn't really phase McCullough. I mean, he he wasn't happy that he lost the prisoner, but he he said later he was a noble fellow and deserved to live. That was not a sentiment that most of the Texans would share. But Ben McCullough was not a hate-filled killer like Mustang Gray and his ilk, and. He admired the the man's soldierly fortitude. Convinced that the cavalry he had encountered was part of a larger force, McCullough persuaded General Taylor to authorize another scout south toward Encarnacion, and his frontier partisan intuition was on target. When McCullough returned to the south, threading his way past pickets in the dark, his patrol discovered a big encampment, and it, it had to be Santa Ana's army. It couldn't be anything less. So McCullough immediately sent most of his patrol back to Warren Taylor, and he and one companion stayed behind for what he referred to as a daylight look. And overnight, they played cat and mouse with a Mexican cavalry patrol and tried to avoid running into pickets. It was cold, too cold for them to catch any sleep, so they they were up all night um, evading Mexican patrols. And when dawn broke, it revealed that there were probably about 20,000 enemy in the camp, and they saw pickets building a fire at the foot of a hill just 80 yards away. And somewhere nearby, they knew, was a patrol of about 20 cavalry. So they were in very perilous circumstances. And it took all of the rangers' skill to elude capture. I love this brilliant feat of hiding in plain sight that uh, actually enabled McCullough and his, his comrade to evade capture, they rode right past a picket about 100 yards out, pretending to be Mexican horse hunters. And they were able to do this because they looked very Mexican in their, their rough and uncouth habiliments, as General Taylor referred to them. They, they wore broad hats and, and and rough range clothes. They weren't in uniform. So these two Texans rode up onto little ridges pointing here and there as if they were checking for sign of horses. They, they portrayed Mexican vaqueros out uh, hunting for stray horses. And the ruse worked. They rode past a number of Mexican pickets and patrols and, and never drew their suspicion. So returning to Agua Nueva, they found that Taylor's army had decamped, which was a good thing. They'd been warned by McCullough's returning patrol of Santa Ana's approach. And Agua Nueva would have been a terrible place to to give battle. It was flat and there were no advantages of terrain. And instead, Taylor pulled back to high ground behind a pass through which Santa Ana would have to bring his force, and that was a place called Buena Vista. So McCullough, who hadn't slept in, in several days, uh, grabbed some shut-eye and then headed to Buena Vista and joined the American line of battle. And when the battle kicked off at about 8 a.m. on February 23rd, 1847, McCullough was on the American right flank, where the action was very hot, and McCullough fought with his usual coolness and skill. He was at considerable risk. A horse was shot out from under him, and he also managed to chase down and capture a Mexican lancer, the chase ending just a few yards in front of the enemy line. As it became clear that the Americans had won the battle, McCullough and Major Andrew Jackson Coffee stood between the Mexican-American and American lines and toasted the victory with a bottle of coffee's champagne, which McCullough declared was the best wine he had ever tasted. So thanks to McCullough's reconnaissance, Taylor's army not only escaped a surprise assault by Santa Ana's force, which they had been unaware of prior to McCullough's warning. And old rough and ready had time to choose his own fighting ground, and that led to a decisive victory. And in understatement that was typical of his character, McCullough summed up the work. He said, In this way, we did the country some service. So it turns out that being an all-time tier-one, badass, frontier-partisan war hero could make you a legend, but it couldn't make you a living. McCullough spent the decade after the Mexican War as kind of the classic 19th century American man on the make. He moved around a lot. He got involved in a whole bunch of different business ventures, none of which really panned out, uh, different kinds of inventions including a innovative breech-loading rifle that was actually a, a pretty good firearm and, and, unfortunately, a little bit ahead of its time. He also sought federal appointments, and none of it really panned out. Ben McCullough was best suited by temperament and experience and talent and his self-education to lead light mobile troops in battle. That was what he was really best at and born to do, and yet his fondest wish, which was to command a regiment of U.S. Cavalry, was always denied to him. Ben McCullough came up in a yeoman tradition where natural leaders were pushed to the fore. That was the frontier military tradition, going all the way back to the New England frontier, and through Kentucky and Tennessee and and out to Texas. But by the middle of the 19th century, America was becoming more civilized and, and soldiering for a living had become the domain of professionals. And no matter how much respect he commanded, McCullough was just not going to get an official military command. So he turned to other things. He was one of the thousands of Americans who headed west to California in 1849 after the discovery of gold. And he very quickly discovered what most everybody else found, that fortune was very elusive for the men who actually worked the gold fields. His friends secured him what looked to be a plum job as a tax collector, but the revenues turned out to be less than expected. He won election as Sheriff of Sacramento County in California, but the salary wasn't enough to support an honest man. And Ben McCullough was an honest man. Also, Ben didn't really like California. He liked the country very well. Um, There's a a funny anecdote uh, that that shows the kind of uh, of hard-headed scots-Irish frontier style that uh that he embodied he when he saw the the redwoods in California, he opined that they would make beautiful, not free lumber. <laughs> it's not to say that he didn't have an appreciation for beauty, but uh American frontiersmen were always uh looking at natural resources, no matter how wondrous. Um, as something to exploit. So McCullough liked California well enough as a country, but he didn't like the people because there were just too many abolitionists. As we talked about at the top, Ben McCullough was a pro-slavery man, a Southern patriot. He was untroubled by and actually a a partisan and an advocate of what came to be called the the peculiar institution. McCullough himself was not a big slave owner. Uh, In his lifetime, he never owned more than a handful of slaves and was never part of the plantation culture. But as his biographer Thomas Cutler writes, Whatever his personal and financial interest in slavery might have been, Ben McCullough was a product of his culture, the son of a slaveholding family, and a proud citizen of a region increasingly embattled by Northern and European foes for its dedication to the peculiar institution. McCullough was fiercely committed to slavery in the abstract, and looked upon the abolitionist assault on the institution as an affront to Southern honor. So Ben McCullough hit his late 40s with few prospects, and the nation was facing the gathering storm of the Civil War. McCullough served as a federal commissioner sent to Utah to negotiate the end of the crisis with the Mormon Church that had threatened to break out into a full-scale war, and he worked very hard to promote the breech-loading Morse carbine, which, as I said, was a good firearm. Uh, just uh, it was hard to get uh, the military to take on innovation during this period. That would change during the Civil War, but uh, there have been a lot of times in American history where adopting new weapon systems just uh, seemed like too much for uh, military officials, and and that's kind of what happened with the Morris carbine. Um, The position as commissioner failed to lead to a more permanent position in the federal government, and despite some success with the Morse carbine, the tangle of its patent rights kept him from making any money on it, and he thought he was going to get rich. So, without any means and completely dissatisfied with the romantic prospects that he found as a lobbyist in Washington, D.C., he couldn't see taking any of the society bells that he met there back to Texas, he kind of despaired at the idea of settling down the way his, or that he would be able to settle down the way that his brother Henry had. So late 40s, bachelor, few prospects kind of scuffling along, and then the storm broke and the nation went to war. And of course, Ben McCullough jumped immediately into the fray. As a commander of southern militia, he took the surrender of the federal garrison at San Antonio. That being San Antonio, Texas, of course. And then he petitioned for a command in the Confederate Army. And just as he had when he was U.S. Secretary of War... Confederate President Jefferson Davis kind of looked askance at non-pro frontier soldiers and uh, he was not interested and his government was not interested in giving Ben McCullough a formal army command. And knowing full well that, as he put it, Jeff Davis does not intend to give me any show, McCullough settled for a command in the kind of backwater theater of the Trans-Mississippi West and took responsibility for the defense of Arkansas and the Indian Territory. He may not have been entirely happy being away from the major actions in the Eastern and the Tennessee theater of the early days of the Civil War, but, uh, he took his responsibilities seriously, and he was a very capable military man, as we have seen. One of McCullough's opponents, the Union General Franz Siegel, said that the Texas general was rough and ready, not at all speculative, but very practical, to the point, and rich in resources to reach it. He was a good fighter, energetic in battle, and quick in discerning danger or espying the weak point of his antagonist, an excellent organizer, disciplinarian, and administrator indefatigable in recruiting and equipping troops. So despite his outlook, Jefferson Davis and the Confederate government would um, likely have ended up tapping Ben McCullough for a higher command, uh, somewhat like uh, that Mississippi frontier-bred natural fighting man, Nathan Bedford Forrest. But fate ultimately had something else in store for McCullough. And on March 7th and 8th in 1862, Confederate forces under General Earl Van Dorn clashed with Union troops at a crossroads marked by Elkhorn Tavern. And this is a a spot near Fayetteville, Arkansas. Scouting Ford, armed with his beloved Morse Carbine, McCullough fell to the fire of Union sharpshooters. This was a very hot fight, and it ended as a defeat for the Confederates. But the death of McCullough was acknowledged as perhaps the most severe blow in the battle. And it's kind of ironic, you know, this, this great scout who had dodged death many times against Comanche and in the Mexican War, ended up dying at the hands of his own estranged countrymen. In a lot of ways, Ben McCullough is an archetypal ranger. An archetypal Texas ranger, for sure. One of the great captains of that outfit. But uh, an archetypal ranger in the broader sense of of frontier history. He combined a pretty high degree of tactical brilliance, I would say, with really unmatched skills as a scout and spy. He was just an, an ace reconnaissance man. He was masterful in field craft and had a commitment to securing accurate and timely intelligence on the enemy that weren't always present in these early days before that kind of work was was professionalized um, in, in the way that, uh, that the great scout of the end of the 19th century, Frederick Russell Burnham, worked to professionalize it. McCullough was archetypal in, in in other ways, too, as a frontier partisan and the fact that his service didn't translate into financial success and the accumulation of, of worldly goods. That happened a lot. Uh, wealth seemed to elude the majority of frontier partisans. Ben McCullough was an exemplar of the southern frontier yeoman culture, and was in a lot of ways the best of the breed. And that breed has a lot to admire about it. Fortitude, practicality, enterprise, never quit, root, hog, or die spirit. At the same time, it was also a culture that, if we're honest, was rife with intolerance and could be really bloody-minded the rough democracy that grew out of that Scots-Irish-dominated American frontier culture was essential to the American character. It's part of who we are to this day, Um, much to our benefit in a lot of respects. But that democracy wasn't for everybody. It wasn't intended to be for everybody. It was certainly not for Indians, And it wasn't for Mexicans, and it wasn't for black people. Everything in history is a double-edged sword. And every culture has virtues and downsides. And a larger-than-life culture, like the frontier culture that produced Ben McCullough, is going to have outsized virtues. That's why it's mythologized. It's also going to have some terrible vices. And honest history means taking the bad with the good. So that's where I come down on, on that question. Do we erase men like Ben McCullough from history? Because reconciling their genuine heroism with some of their beliefs that we now consider abhorrent is, is just too difficult and and makes us feel uncomfortable? I don't think so. Honest history means taking the bad of the good and trying to understand it all. And heritage, on the other hand, is about preserving that which is best about a historical culture. Take what you need and leave the rest, as the song says. For me, and on these terms, Ben McCullough is one of the great Texas Ranger captains, absolutely a tier one frontier partisan warrior, and a man who simply deserves to be remembered. I'd like to thank all of you for, for listening. And uh, i particularly like to thank the Patrons from our Patreon page who contribute to keeping the Frontier Partisans podcast and the Frontier Partisans blog going. They're the ones that are bringing the firewood to the electronic campfire, and I appreciate them. That's Rick Schwertfeger, David Rolson, Paul McNamee, Matthew Free Live Free, El Randolito, Jerry Nunnally Alan Godseff Chaz Clifton Wade McKnight Mike McIver Harry Kaiser Ash Bob Buchholz Deuce Richardson Bridger Larson Matthew Campbell Hawken Horse John Sweet Josh Buchanan Malcolm Brooks Jeremy Popple David Costello, Clint Richards, Cody Rush, and Speedo. Thank you all for being here. This is usually the the point in the podcast where I point to the next uh, stop down the trail. I actually haven't decided what that's going to be. I'm not sure whether we're going to uh, to stay in uh, Texas and uh, and the U.S. Mexico border area or uh, return. To the eastern frontier of the 18th century or perhaps venture a little further afield Um, sign on for the patreon page and you'll be the first to know uh, what direction that's going but uh, in any case it won't be long and we'll see you down the trail down the trail down the trail down the trail